Hey, good evening. How are y'all? Great to be with y'all tonight. Uh, we are in our second sermon in a, a new sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. So I am going to uh, read the passage tonight uh, from Mark chapter 1, verse 9, through Mark chapter 1, verse 13. And we're talking a little bit about tonight about how at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Mark uh, begins with the identity and the mission of Jesus. And then everything that plays out beyond that, every narrative arc of the rest of, Mar- of, the, rest of the Gospel is about uh, reinforcing that, but also challenging us with the identity and the mission of Jesus, asking us what that means for us. So uh, let's listen to those things as I read from Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 9 through 13. Um, it's on some page in the, in the order. I, I never look at that part, but it's also up there. If you, don't, if you don't have a Bible. So Mark 1, starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for how you minister to us like Jesus was ministered to by the angels. You minister to us with your presence and your word, and we pray that you would do that uh, for us by your grace this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, one of the things that I've been uh, wrestling with for almost all of the 19 years that I've been a pastor is developing a good answer to the question that somebody asked me who's sitting on an airplane next to me. What do you do? So, Because usually when they say, hey, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor, they say something like, well, that's nice. And they'll open up their laptop and they'll start pretending like they're typing emails or something like that. And I'm trying to come up with an answer to the question that won't immediately shut conversations down. I, I, for a while I toyed around with saying I was a shepherd, but most people don't really believe that or really understand. Somebody this morning told me I should say that I'm in life insurance, um, which makes sense in some ways, but I'm not sure if that is a more of a conversation killer than being a pastor. So I hadn't so, so usually I just go straight through the front door. I'm a pastor, and then I let people deal with it, you know, however it is that they want to deal with it. I, I remember when I was I first moved into the neighborhood that our family lives in now, uh, my oldest son, who's now in college, was in second grade, and so we signed up for baseball through the local sports association there in our neighborhood, and I had taken him to practice, or Shannon had taken him to practice, I was going to pick him up at the end of practice, and I got there, and there's about five minutes of practice left, so I started talking to one of the dads uh, who was out there, and, you know, we were talking, and, you know, talking about the neighborhood, talking about the elementary school, and then, you know, within about a minute, the inevitable question comes, and he says, so what do you do? And went straight through the front door. I'm a pastor. And he said, darn it. Except those were, that was not the word he used. He used a different word, substitute. Darn it. Now I can't cuss anymore. And I looked at him and I was like, okay. 
Uh, and, and because it's interesting because culturally, I think that that's kind of what people think that pastors do, you know, generally just sort of walking around kind of grumpy all the time, scowling at people, waiting for them to say a bad word. You know, that's kind of what he thought that that was my job. But that's why sometimes you kind of hesitate in those conversations, right? I think there's a right impulse in us as human beings where we don't want to be reduced to what it is that we do in our vocations. You know, whether it's our, you know, whatever it is, we don't want to be reduced to that. But at the same time, we can't really strip that away from our identity, you know? There is something that is communicated about me by the fact that I'm a pastor. And there's something communicated by you by the fact that you're a teacher or you're a lawyer or you're a doctor or you're retired or you're a stay-at-home mom or you homeschool your children or you drill for oil in West Texas. It communicates something. It's not all of you. You are more than those things, but you're also not really less than those things. I say this because Jesus is introduced in Mark 1, 1 in a sentence, one short sentence, that describes who he is and what he does. His identity and his mission are tied up in this sentence. So this is the sentence, the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, everything about Jesus is wrapped up in seed form in that sentence. His name, Jesus, which is the Aramaic version of the Old Testament proper name, Joshua, which literally means the Lord saves. It communicates Jesus' mission, what he has come to do. He has come to seek and to save the lost. He's also Christ the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. But he's no mere human king. This king, this Messiah, this Christ is the son of God. The son of God. He is a divine king. This king is God himself. And these words set the stage for all of the rest of the gospel of Mark. Mark fleshes all of this out in the words of Jesus, in the actions of Jesus, in, in, in the narrative going to the cross, in the resurrection, all of those kinds of things. And what he is doing is in all of these scenarios, in all of these narratives, he's pushing you and me into decisive action. He's challenging us. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you believe this? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Is your life oriented around this reality? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you find your ultimate hope in this? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you find the purpose of your life, the mission of your own life in this? And the first narrative scene in the Gospel of Mark where he begins to play this out in, in the actions of Jesus or in his baptism and in his temptation when he's sent out into the wilderness. And in both of those things, we see his identity, his mission, and what that means for us. So first, let's look at the identity of Jesus. For the second time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is announced to be the Son of God. This time, it is from the mouth of God the Father himself. After the heavens are torn open at the baptism of Jesus, Mark says the Spirit 
came upon Jesus, lighting on him like a dove, and a voice called from heaven, You are my son, with you I am well pleased. Now it's worth stopping, stepping back here and asking, what in the world is going on here? There's a lot of questions surrounding this. I I once read... um, C.S. Lewis wrote an introduction one time to a book. I think it was Athanasius on the incarnation of the Son of God. It's a, it's a book of theology. And, he, and C.S. Lewis wrote the, in, the introduction to it. And he said something like this. He said, some people feel really close to God when they read books of devotion or piety. He said, I feel really close to God with a pipe clenched between my teeth and a pencil in my hand working on a tough bit of theology. In the baptism and the temptation of Jesus, there's a bit of a tough theology. So if you have a pipe, if you brought one, go ahead, you can pull it out now. You can clench it in your teeth. You can't light it. It won't, won't work in here. But you can gnaw on it if you want to because we're going to think about this for a second. Because the first question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Why was Jesus baptized? Why did Jesus submit to baptism? And the reason I ask that question is because in the previous verses in John chapter 1, Mark says that John the Baptist came announcing a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. He goes on to say that people were coming to him and they were coming to be baptized in the Jordan River and before they were baptized in the Jordan River, they were confessing their sins. But here Jesus is being baptized by John in the Jordan River. Does that mean that Jesus came confessing his sins? Well, no, it does not mean that. Jesus had no sins to confess. So what's going on here? Why is he doing this? Well, one of the narrative features of Mark, and you're going to have to get used to this as we go along, is that Mark is, Mark is a man of action. He's not a man of many words. He gets kind of right to it and then he moves on to the next thing. So he doesn't go into a lot of detail. But Matthew, uh, in his gospel, fleshes this out a bit for us. Matthew tells us, that when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized in the Jordan River, John the Baptist saw him approaching. And John tried to stop him. He actually looked at Jesus and he put his hands up and he said, No, I need to be baptized by you. You don't need to be baptized by me. But Jesus looked at John and he said this, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus is saying, I need to be baptized by you because it is a part of my mission to redeem all things. Now, the author of Hebrews gives us a hint at what this means in Hebrews chapter 2. He says this, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What that means is that Jesus had to do that. He had to identify with us in every way so that he might be a perfect substitute for our sins, allowing us to have relationship with God. So Jesus submitted to the baptism of John as part of what it meant for him to be like us in every respect, to identify with the people that he came to save. It was necessary, not because he had sins to confess, he did not, but because it was part of his path to act as a substitute for his people on the cross. The second question is this, 
who was present at the baptism of Jesus? Now the short answer to this question is that God was present. There were a lot of other people present too, but God was present at the baptism of Jesus. The triune God was present at the baptism of Jesus, to be specific. You know, one of the objections that people have today to the truth of the Bible and the truth of Christianity is that they say that Christians believe in something the Bible does not teach. And that is that we, as Christians, worship a triune God. One God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is not the only thing, but one of the things that separates Christianity from any of the other major world religions. And people today who are skeptical about the Bible object to that because they say that the Bible doesn't teach this. The word Trinity is never used in the Bible. That actually is true, but it does not mean that the Bible does not teach the Trinity. The Bible teaches the Trinity in a lot of different places, and one of those is right here at the baptism of Jesus. It's a little bit of a hard concept, but this is what the Bible teaches us about the God that we worship as followers of Jesus. There is one God only who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These are not three separate gods. That is what would be called tritheism, and we don't believe that. This is also not one God who takes on different forms depending on what he is wanting to do that day. So if he wants to be Jesus, he's kind of in the form of Jesus. If he was wanting to you know, be the Holy Spirit, he's kind of in the whole form of the Holy Spirit. That's another false teaching called modalism. We don't believe that either. One God who eternally exists in three persons in mutual, perfect, self-sacrificing, other-glorifying love. It is a perfect unbroken relationship and this trinitarian godhead is all here at jesus's baptism god the father speaks and pronounces love for his son who is jesus and the spirit descends and rests upon jesus commissioning him for his mission of redemption each person loving the other, each submitting to the other, each serving the other for the shared Trinitarian goal of redeeming creation, all things that is broken by sin. Now, it's important to understand that the, tri the same triune God that was present at the baptism of Jesus is also present at the creation of the world. God the Father speaks. He brings things uh, into, into creation. He creates through his word. The word of God, as John the Apostle calls him, Jesus the Son, is also present at creation. He is the agent through which God creates. And we read in, in, in Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God is hovering upon and over the waters. And later Jewish tradition by the way, uh, uh, speaks of the Spirit of God at creation as the form of a dove. So this same God is present at the baptism of Jesus. The Father speaks. The Son is commissioned for his mission of redemption. The Spirit descends upon him like a dove. So both creation and redemption are projects of the triune God. The same God who created the world is the same God who redeems all things that are fallen because of sin.
Now here's what I want you to, to kind of dig into on this. You and I as human beings are created in the image of God, which means that we as human beings are created to express in our relationships the same way that the Trinity uh, exists in its perfect, unfettered, self-sacrificing, other-glorifying love. Think about it this way. I once was reading about this, and Tim Keller gave an illustration that sparked up a memory in my own mind. When I was in college, my junior year, I took a class. I don't know why I took this class. I think it was a bad idea, but I took it anyway. I took a class called Music as a Way of Knowing. And what it was, was this kind of joint study between the music department and the philosophy department of how you can learn things about the uh, epistemology, you know, the, the, the philosophy of how we know stuff, through music. And I could read music because I had been in choirs and things like that, so I knew which notes, you know, every good boy does fine. I knew all those things, but I did not know music theory, and so this was hard for me. And one of the assignments that we had to do in this class every single week is I had to go to the library, I had to go up to the reference desk, I had to check out a record, and it was a record, it was on vinyl, of a symphony. And, you know, by the way, if you don't know these things, symphonies are long, whole symphonies, really long. And I had to put it on the record player, I had to put headphones on, and I had to listen to the symphony, I had to answer questions that the professor gave. And there were questions about themes and the music, how one movement has a certain theme and it carries on to the next, but there's a variation. And, and do this through all of the periods of, you know, Baroque to classical to, um, you know, to romantic, you know, and on and on. And I'll tell you something, I hated this assignment. I hated it because it was nighttime you know, it's like Thursday night in college. The last thing that I wanted to be doing was sitting in the library listening to Mozart and answering questions. But I did it faithfully every single week, and I'll tell you why. It was not because I loved Mozart. It's because I wanted Mozart to love me. And what I mean by that is this. I did this assignment as much as I disliked it because I wanted to make a good grade in this class. I wanted to make a good grade in this class because I needed a good GPA. I needed a good GPA because I was planning on going to graduate school. I needed these great composers to serve me, right? They needed to submit to me and help me along the way. But here's something, something really weird happened. About the third week in of like doing this assignment, I actually began to understand it. And I actually began to see these themes and these thematic elements. And I actually began to understand how these composers were super geniuses and were crazy smart and were unbelievably talented and gifted. I began to actually love this music. So now, I don't know how many years after I've graduated from college, I will gladly spend my own money to go to a place to listen to people play Bach. Not because I need Bach to help me succeed anymore, but because I have learned to love him. I've learned to love his music. I've learned to glory in what he produces. This is very similar to the mutual love of the triune God. Not that they had to learn this. They always existed in this relationship. Each person loving of the, of the Trinity, each person glorifying, magnifying, serving the other. And we, as human beings created in the image of God, are created to relate to one another in our relationships this same way.
to hover around the other and not to have the other hover around us. We struggle in this, don't we? Don't we struggle to relate to another person with this kind of truly sacrificial, other-serving, other-glorifying love? The truth of the matter is that if you're a narcissist, you cannot possibly love another person. You can't love another person. The reason why is because a narcissist believes that everything and everybody actually revolves around them. And here's an interesting thing. And this is why relating to narcissistic people makes you feel crazy sometimes. Because they will do things that make you think that they're loving you. They will take actions of love. But it's really calculated, right? It's really, at, at the end of the day, it's a chess move because they need something from you or they want something from you. True love Love is implanted in the human heart through the tr- by, 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 by virtue of the fact that we are created by triune God revolves around the other and exalts the other. You also can't possibly love if you're an individualist. If you believe that you really do not need another person in this world to kind of live your life, you can't love another. God is three in one. His very essence of being is loving relationship. So part of what it means to be created in the image of God is that we are created for relationships. We are created to enmesh our lives into the lives of other people. And this does not matter whether you are married or single whether you're divorced or widowed. It doesn't matter. Our call is to live in relationship. Trinitarian love is expressed in relationship. So there we see the identity of Jesus and those implications for us. Now let's look at the mission of Jesus and the implications for us. Mark tells us in verse 12 that when the Spirit of the Holy Spirit came to rest upon him, something happened. And you know, if you've ever seen this scene of the baptism of Jesus kind of expressed in art, like Renaissance art, it kind of has this very sweet, sentimental spirit to it. Like, you know, this kind of like angelic choir going, you know, and it's all beautiful and and the sheep are smiling and things like that. But that's not what happened. Because Mark says, immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Now, by the way, Hint, on reading the book of Mark, one of the massively important words in the book of Mark that you will see popping up over and over and over again is the word immediately. He says it all the time. Like I said, Mark is a man of action, not a man of words. Immediately. And, and, And what he is trying to communicate by this is that Jesus is driven. Jesus is moving. He's moving. And he's moving. Where is he moving to? He's moving to the cross. He will not let anything get in his way. He's moving to the cross immediately. He is taking action. But the action that he was taking at this moment was to be driven out into the wilderness by himself. And there, Mark tells us, he was tempted by Satan. Now this is a critical moment in the life of Jesus because it is here that Jesus remains obedient to God the Father. And he refuses to compromise his mission. As the author of Hebrews puts it, Jesus learned obedience through suffering. What happened was that Jesus went from untested obedience to God his Father to tested obedience to God his Father and emerged as he went in. 
perfect, spotless, sinless. The Lamb of God, able to be a perfect sacrifice for sin. But again, there's more going on here than meets the eye. Mark doesn't go into great deal regarding detail regarding the temptation of Jesus. But again, you can look to Matthew. And you can see that just like there are parallels in the baptism of Jesus to creation, there are parallels to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness to Adam and Eve's temptation in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And we can learn some very important things from that. See, after God created Adam and Eve in his image, he set them in the garden. They were in perfect relationship to God, their father. They were in perfect relationship to one another. What happens? Well, Satan comes to tempt them in the form of a serpent. And Satan tells them a lie. Satan tells them that they can be just like God. They don't have to worship God. They can be God. And God knows this and he's insecure about it. And so he's holding out on them. And he is holding off, he's holding them away from the one thing that they really need to be God for themselves. Which is the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God commanded them not to eat from. And so they ate from that tree. And the Bible says that their eyes were opened. And they knew good and evil. But they weren't like God, everything fell apart. Their relationship with God and our relationship with God was severed. Their relationship to one another and our human relationships are severed and broken and hurting. Their relationship to creation and work and our relationship to creation and work was broken. Now Jesus goes into the wilderness and then Satan approaches him. And what does Satan say to Jesus? You can have all glory. You can have. He takes him up to the highest of mountains. You can read about this in Matthew. He says, look over all the kingdoms of the earth. All of these can be yours. You can have all of these. Just do one thing. Bow down and worship me. Now Adam and Eve failed their test from the evil one. But Jesus passed his test from the evil one. Jesus knew that his pathway to glory had to lay through suffering. What the evil one was tempting Jesus to do was to shortcut his pathway to glory by ignoring the critical part for us, the cross, which puts us, the possibility for us to be back in relationship with God. But you see, where Adam failed, Jesus, the second Adam, succeeded. Now again, there are implications for you and for me as well. How do our lives in Christ play out? Well, we have the opportunity through faith in Jesus Christ to be united to the triune God, to be united to Christ. We are in perfect relationship at that moment with God because when he sees us he sees his own son and so just like when God the father looked down at Jesus and said you are my beloved son with you I am well pleased if you are in Christ by faith in him when God looks at you he says exactly the same thing you are my beloved son you are my beloved daughter with you I am well pleased but Satan does not like 
this relationship. He wants you still for himself. And so he comes at you and he tempts you. And he tempts you with the same thing he tempted Adam and Eve with. You don't need God, you can be God. You don't need him, you can be him. And we believe him. And so sometimes we turn our backs on God and we chase power, but then it ends up turning on us. And we end up with a ton of, a ton of people that we know, but no real relationships because every relationship we've ever been in has been somebody that we have used to advance our own purposes. And so we are alone. We turn our backs upon God and we chase unfettered sexuality outside of the bounds of marriage of one man and one woman. We turn away and we express our sexuality however it is that we want, with whomever we want. Why? Because Satan holds out a lie to us there, a promise that cannot come true. And we realize at the end that pleasure is fleeting. What we have been longing for that entire time is a deep connection with another human being that we cannot find simply in experiences. We turn our backs upon God and we chase after money or material things. Not money as a circumstance of God's providential sovereignty over your life where he entrusts people with resources, but money as a God. Money as an end in itself. And what happens over time is that you end up unhappy, just as unhappy as you were before. I would actually say through conversations I've had with people, probably more unhappy than you were before because money is like anything else in this world over time it gets boring it gets boring and and someday you lie down and you realize oh my goodness what did I sacrifice for this what relationships what quality time what in my life for something that held out a promise to you that could not be delivered you see, Satan is still alive and well. These are all ways and more that he still comes at us and speaks to us and lies to us and tempts us to bow down to him and not to worship God. But here's the good news. Here is the good news. Because Jesus succeeded in the wilderness where Adam failed in the garden, you are equipped now with the very life of Christ you are equipped with the Spirit of God to ignore the siren calls of the evil one and to live a life of faith, of obedience, of repentance where he hears you and forgives you. Now we've seen two times in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus has been called the Son of God. And I want to leave us tonight with one more. There's one more time in the Gospel of Mark where this declaration of the identity of Jesus is spoken and it's unexpected it's the very end almost it's in it's in Mark chapter 15 Jesus is hanging on the cross he has just breathed his last and the most unexpected person that is present at that event is the most moved by it there is a Roman soldier who is standing there guarding the cross so that, so that nobody you know, tries to take him down or tries to steal the body of Jesus. He should be sitting there just guarding another criminal who's dying on a cross for another crime. 
But when Jesus breathed his last breath, this Roman, this pagan, this non-Jewish, non-worshipper of God looks at him and says life-changing words, salvific words. Surely this was the Son of God. This confession changes absolutely everything. If you speak these words, the Apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It changes everything. Unites you to Jesus. Grants you the power of the Holy Spirit. Puts you in that place where God the Father himself looks at you and says, and will say into eternity, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for that affirmation of love that you place on all who are united to your Son, our Savior, by faith. We pray that we would walk in that, in the surety of that, in the certainty of that, every day of our lives into eternity, that we would resist the temptations of the evil one, and that we would serve you with joy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.